All right, there is a huge difference, isn't there, between authority with power to execute justice versus authority which is powerless to do anything, isn't there? For instance, if police had no authority to fine you, if they could only suggest that you follow the road rules, how many of you would actually follow them? My suggestion is very few. Although in Bundaberg there would continually be people driving 20 kilometers an hour under the speed limit. But nonetheless, most people would not follow the rules. Some cities in the US defunded the police over the last few years and they basically stopped arresting people for minor crimes. And you can watch countless footage on YouTube of people walking into clothing stores, selecting the pair of shoes they want in front of the owners, taking them and just walking out. Because there is no penalty, there's no authority, there's no a way to control people's behaviour. Or, what if you worked for a boss who had no ability to fire you? How productive would you be? Actually, it's called the government. No, anyway. But, but, but seriously, some people in the government sector work hard, but everyone knows government does not operate efficiently as private business. Why? Private business can't keep running at a deficit and printing more money. Right? They have to run at a profit or they go under. There are consequences if private business can't sustain itself. I remember a few years ago when the government did an audit and they found a whole lot of people in positions that didn't exist. Their department had been shut down and changing government or whatever, and these people were literally turning up to their building, sitting down playing Candy Crush for eight hours, and then going home and doing so for years and being paid every week. Right? It, it, no consequences doesn't help us as people because every culture... Every skin colour, every nationality, according to Scripture, is totally depraved, right? Every person on the planet, every person is totally depraved, which is why every culture, every person needs rules to govern them, because people are inherently sinful and must be restrained. Without restraint, look out. Society will often say people are inherently good. It's society that made them bad. When in fact the opposite is true. People are inherently bad and therefore create bad systems and structures. Right? That's the reality of what the scripture teaches us. So why start this way? Well, this is where Peter is going in our passage this week. He begins to answer for us the, one of the age-old questions of the Christian faith. If I am saved by grace, if all of my debts are paid by the blood of Jesus, why does it matter how I live? If I am saved by grace, if I'm paid by the death of Jesus on the cross, then I can live for money, I can live for parties, I can live for sex, I can live for career, I can live for whatever hedonistic pursuit I choose, and I've got Jesus as the guarantee of my salvation. 
Well, win-win. I get everything. And Peter has anticipated this thought. Right? So in summary so far, the first 12 verses of Peter, he's been cementing in you and in me the assurance of our salvation, that we are chosen, that we are called, that our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, that we are adopted into the family of God to an internal and undefiled inheritance. And then last week, he pivoted and said, in light of that, in light of what God has won for you, in light of the eternity that is yours, live holy lives set apart for the glory of God. And we may ask, why? Why should I bother? After everything you said in 1 to 12... I'm going to party like it's a good year to party. What are you supposed to say? I don't know. Anyway, um, right? So he's answering that question. Live holy lives, and you might say, why? And he says, this week, why? Okay, so that's where we're up to together. So if you have your Bible there, open up to 1 Peter, and we're going to look at 1, 17 to 21. 1 Peter 1, 17 through to 21. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. All right, verse 17. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. It begins, if. If is the important word here. Now, some of your translations might say since, but that actually kind of misses the point. The word here is literally, if you appeal to the Father. And Peter says that very intentionally, because what that means is this. Peter is saying, if you appeal to the Father, and the natural response should be, yes, think of everything he just outlined in verses 1 to 12. A glorious inheritance forevermore under fire with him. So if you appeal to him, and everyone's meant to say, of course I would. That sounds amazing. And Peter then wants you to own that decision. If you appeal to him, yes, I do. Well, know this, there are consequences to that. That's what Peter wants you to understand. If you appeal, yes, I do, it sounds amazing, great, there are consequences. It will change your life. It will impact your decisions. It will make you think about the future. It will change what you live for. If you appeal, you must understand that there are consequences to that decision. Peter wants you, Peter wants me to wrestle with Yes, you have been adopted into the family of God. But you also bring your will 
and desire into that relationship and they must be surrendered to God as well. If you appeal to the Father. Firstly, Father here, of course, denotes our relationship to God, that we have been adopted into his family. Of course, it's reminiscent of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Our Father, who is in heaven, or who art in heaven, it just sounds better. Our Father, right? Our relationship with God, having been adopted into his family. Now, verse 17 holds a couple of things you must hold in tension. Peter says, our Father, as I said, denoting relationship. But he will also say later in the same verse, conduct yourselves in reverence. And that word is better translated, reverent fear. Or some of your translations may literally just read fear. Right? Conduct yourselves in reverent fear. So, know God as your Father and address him as such, but live in reverent fear. Can we hold those two things in tension? Our relationship to God as Father, but also reverent fear. Well, Peter thinks that we can, and so do the rest of the New Testament writers. Firstly, here's your Father in heaven, but please, I beg of you, Don't call him daddy. Abba does not mean daddy. Okay? I don't know whoever told you this. It's not true. Okay? Do not go there, please. The New Testament is so careful not to be too casual in the way it addresses God. The word Abba is an Aramaic word. It appears three times in the New Testament. Each time it appears, it is followed by the Greek word pater, which is not daddy. The Greek word for daddy is papas, but that's not the New Testament word that is used here. In order to make sure that our language, our our, our way of addressing God doesn't come across as too familiar, it adds this word abba pater, which best translates as dear father or dearest father. It's an expression of affection combined with no loss of the status of God. Okay, can we just really understand that? You know, I, I, I know of youth groups who take communion with Coke and pizza. I cannot agree with that. There's a familiarity there which I just can't agree with and it comes from this whole, you know, he's my daddy. no. He's our holy and righteous God. Dear Father, intimacy but dignity. And we should get that, don't we? We understand that. Growing up, I loved hunting. I owned like four rifles, absolutely loved shooting. And buying a new rifle was one of the most exciting things I did as a kid. Uh, Absolutely loved polishing them, uh, cleaning them, thought it was fantastic. I'll tell you something, I loved them. I treated them with serious respect. Why? Because I knew if I didn't, it would kill me. Right? We understand you can love something, but also deeply respect it. Some of you weirdos out there think cars are amazing, like you know all about the bits of the motor and those things that it does, and you just think that's awesome. Uh, And yet, 
We all drive to conditions. Why? Because we know that that cool thing can kill you if you don't treat it with respect. Our Father in heaven never stops being the almighty maker and creator of all things. His holiness and purity are unchanging. His majesty and power are limitless. And because of Christ, you get to call him dear Father. That is so incredibly profound. But remember who he is. Treat him with reverent fear. Right? Respect for who he is. Peter sums up this attitude in verse 17 by highlighting God as our Father, but we should have this deep, reverent fear. Why, says Peter? Because God judges impartially each one's work. Okay, so he's your Father, but you should have reverent fear. Why? Because he judges impartially. Has Peter just undone verses 1 to 12, which were all about grace? Now we're being judged according to our work? No, of course not. Peter is saying your relationship as a child of God, as a son of the Father, doesn't change the fact that you need to live in light of that relationship. The New Testament writers speak about this in different ways all the time. James, faith without works is what? Dead, right? Faith without works is dead. Coming into relationship with the Father changes how you live. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. So this is Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control and everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Hang on. Paul says, I'm disciplined, I'm focused, I'm working hard so that I'm not disqualified. Did did Paul live in fear of losing his salvation? No, never. We never see that in Paul. But what Paul recognizes is this, that if he's not girding up the loins of his mind, as we looked at last week. Many of you have thanked me for my weird slide I put up. Uh, Anyway, if if he's not doing that, if he's not sober-minded, if he's not self-controlled, if he's not disciplined, if he's not telling others the good news, then it begins to say that Paul himself is not saved that Paul himself may well, in fact, be disqualified. Because if Paul runs the Christian race as one meandering, as one flowing along in worldliness, happily saying that Jesus guarantees me the prize, but never competes for the prize, 
like God has commanded, then it might in fact prove that he never knew Christ to begin with. Church, can I challenge you? The Christian life is not passive. The Christian life is not lying on a massage table while Jesus massages your feelings of security and comfort. It's not the massage table. It's a marathon. It's the race. And you're running to win. This is the Christian life. It's a life of discipline, commitment, effort, hard work, putting in what's required to discipline your mind. Okay, that's a response to being a child of God. Here's another way of looking at it. This is Galatians 5, 20 to 21. Galatians 5, 20 to 21. Another way of looking at the same idea. Idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, we are saved by grace, but we are saved by grace into a relationship with almighty, holy God whose wrath against sin cost him the life of his son. And to come into a relationship with almighty, holy God to call him dear father and then live your life in a way that doesn't take into account the price that was paid just proves you've never actually met him and never been adopted into his family. He is the judge who judges impartially. We must live in light of that. Church, what does your conduct, what does your life, what do your attitudes say about your salvation? about your adoption, about whether or not you're running to win the prize. Peter has laid the foundation of grace. He has then said we are to be holy as God is holy, and now he is saying why. Because you can pretend to your family, and you can pretend to your church, and you can pretend to the community. But God will judge you impartially. And he knows if you've done the good works prepared in advance for you to do or if you have lived for yourself. He is an impartial judge. Peter is making it abundantly clear that God our Father has the authority and power to execute justice. And if you, in your attitude, is simply, I've got Jesus, but it hasn't made you into an athlete competing for his glory, then you should not have reverent fear, you should have bone-chilling terror, because the judgment of an impartial judge with the power to execute authority still sits upon you. 
Peter wants you to grasp. In your grace, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, have you understood that you are born again to live in light of your adoption into his family, that you are born again to live a life of holiness and reverent fear? Is it seen in your life? Remember, as Peter puts it in our passage, that our time on earth, before you see the Father, is a time living as a stranger. You don't fit into the world and its systems. You don't fit into its desires and its demands. We live as foreigners and strangers in this land. I think of traveling overseas to places where I've had to learn the standard greetings of that language. And apparently my pronunciation has been pretty good. So I would greet someone on the street, or they would greet me, and I would respond in apparently quite decent-sounding language. And then they would launch into a conversation. And it would become abundantly clear very quickly that I had no concept of what they were talking about, and that I did not, in fact, actually belong. Church, we look the same as the world around us and we speak the same language. The closer people get to you, the more they should see you don't belong. The closer they get to understand how you think, your dreams, your desires, what authority you follow, how you conduct yourself, the closer they get, the more they should see that you don't belong. Because you're adopted into the family of God And you're different. You're a stranger in this world. All right, verses 18 to 19. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. For you know... Causal, for you know why we live lives of reverent fear, because you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. What does this mean? It means that again, he's writing to a Gentile audience predominantly, and he's saying your empty way of life has a religious tone in the original language. In other words, you lived a life following false gods, you lived a life of false religion, and you inherited that from one generation to the next. That's how you lived That's how you were raised, and then you were redeemed. You were set free, okay? So you inherited this this false idea of living from one generation to the next, and it's an empty life. It's a life that has ultimately no meaning. And Peter says, you were redeemed from that empty way of life, bought out of it. The price was paid, says Peter, not by gold or silver, They're part of the empty way of life. But by the blood of Jesus, an unblemished and spotless lamb. In other words, you were saved out of your old life by the perfect life of Jesus. By his obedience, by his sinlessness, by his self-control, by his discipline, by his perfectly running the race and willingly sacrificing himself on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Why should you live a life of reverent fear? 
Why should you live a life of holiness as strangers? And Peter says, because Jesus, who is God, paid the price of your redemption. Now you get this, don't you? Different values of things, different worth of things, changes how we treat them. Now I want a show of hands here. Who had something in their house growing up which you were told strictly you were not to break? Right? Something that was either sentimental and of great worth or simply maybe of great worth or a combination of both. Was it some fine bone china? Was it an electronic something? Anyone? Anyone grow up in a family that said, you don't break this thing? Yeah, nearly every hand's gone up, right? We all get that. In our household, for my children growing up, when I was on my way out of South Africa once, I bought this glass, kind of like beastline, I guess you'd call it, and it had all these silhouettes of African animals on it. And I figured I may never get another one, and I loved it. I drank every coffee out of it in the morning. I drank every cup of water out of it. It was my, my stein, and I was like, kids, you don't even touch this. You get any glass out of the cabinet, not this one. Anyway, Beth broke it, so they were, they were fine. Um, uh, anyway, so um, we all understand that some things have value placed on them, and we're careful how we handle them. And Peter says to you, you live a life of reverent fear. You care about how you live because what is the value placed on you? Well, the purchase price of you was the blood of the Son of God. How should that change the way you think about your life? Of what worth and value are you that the Son of God would pay for you by His own blood? Peter says, why should you live differently? Why are you prepared to live as a stranger? Why are you prepared to live a holy life? Because your purchase price, your value was the life of Jesus Christ. Your life is of infinite worth. Live like it. Church, hold your life as something of incredible value and worth don't treat it as a paper plate, trash that the world consumes. I want you to think about it just for a moment, right? Just, just I'll give you a little summary of how the Scripture thinks about you versus how the world does. Which one treats you with more dignity? God says you are created in His likeness of inherent value. Fine bone chime. The world says you are a product of random chance of no inherent value. Paper plate. God says, save your body for the one who will know you, who is willing to make covenant promises for you. Fine bone chime. World says, give yourself to anyone for any reason. Who cares about the consequences? Paper plate. God says your mind is precious. Meditate on me and find real joy. The world says get drunk and muddle your mind. Do stupid things. Who cares? Paper plate. 
We could go on in each and every way. The Word of God says your life is valuable. You are valuable. God has bought you by the blood of His Son. Treat your life as of inherent preciousness and worth. And don't let the world tell you it's trash. Don't live according to the price paid. The blood of Jesus. Verse 20 to 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope are in God. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus who existed before the world was even formed was chosen to be the perfect spotless lamb. So in time before time began, Jesus was chosen and our verse says was revealed in these last days for you. All right? Now, last days simply means the time between Christ and when he returns. So he was chosen before time began, and he was revealed in last days for you. Now, don't miss Peter's ongoing argument. Jesus, since the world began, was chosen to be our sacrifice, to pay the penalty of your sin, and now he has been revealed why? For you, says Peter. That you get to see the plan of salvation that others long for. Don't throw it away in worldly temptation. But live in light of that gift. Live a life of holiness, of reverent fear, as strangers on this earth, because your life was bought at the greatest price. Verse 21, through Jesus you believe in God, through his suffering and death on the cross, you have come to have faith in God, and through his suffering and death, God raised Jesus to glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, remember, Peter is writing to people who are suffering in this passage, who are being persecuted, and he's saying to them, likewise, though you are suffering now, just like Jesus did, with your faith and hope in God, you too will be raised to glory. Right? This is the encouragement to those who are listening. You've come to believe in God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, just like him, with your faith in God, although you suffer now, you too will be raised to glory. Church, the incredible tension of love and grace of God that freely gave you salvation when you repent and believe combined with the knowledge of the awesome power, majesty, and holiness of God that will not tolerate sin. So much so that it cost the life of Jesus to pay the penalty. Which also means, however, that you are of incredible worth. So live like a precious jewel, not like a plastic diamond from a show bag, quickly discarded. Live for Christ, seeing him face to face, 
live in light of the price he paid to bring you into relationship with himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for its clear call to live lives of holiness, of of reverent fear, knowing that you're an impartial judge. But Lord, we have to hold that with the tension of knowing that we are of infinite value because the price that was paid for us was the blood of Christ. Lord, may we not live this life feeling like we're the trash of the world, copying the garbage it throws at us. May we live this life knowing the price that was paid. May that give us the hope, courage, joy, reverence to live each day for the glory of Christ. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.